you know, it's about what the graduates think and how they prepare themselves. And it's also about then who is going to be out there supporting them. And of course, that's a really good negotiation. You know, employability is all about a two way thing. It's all about what's good for your employer and what's good for you. And that equals, you know, a happy, harmonious working relationship. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, it's my pleasure to be joined by one of the most influential and innovative people in steering veterinary education, Professor Liz Mossop. Liz graduated from Edinburgh Vet School in 2000 and following several years in mixed practice jumped headlong into academia, taking up a new post as lecturer in clinical veterinary education at the University of Nottingham in 2006. She was part of the team that created a new model for educating vets and delivered a de novo curriculum based on applied learning with hands-on clinical work from day one. The school has been consistently ranked as outstanding by its students who've gone on to win much admiration from employers across the country since. Liz has racked up an impressive list of achievements, including completing a master's and PhD in clinical education. She has consistently published on topics of interest to anyone who values a happy career in practice and is one of the most cited authors in her field. In 2016, she was awarded a National Teaching Fellowship from the Higher Education Academy and gained Fellowship of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons for meritorious contributions to the profession. She became Professor of Clinical Studies at Nottingham University in 2017. Since then, Liz's career has continued to soar and taken her away from veterinary medicine altogether. She currently works at the University of Lincoln as Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Student Development and Engagement. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Vetex. If you are struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter, or you're burned out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the Vetex community. Thrive is a race-accredited professional skills course where members receive training toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills so join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a thrive member to learn more visit vetexinternational.com today now back to the show this interview was on my radar literally for years after listening in i hope you'll see why i was so happy to finally get the chance to speak with professor mossop as we see more and more graduates feeling disenchanted with and overwhelmed by their vocation, her message and experience couldn't be more important. Because as impressive as her contributions to education are, it's perhaps her persistent refusal to stay in one career lane that highlights most brilliantly why having a veterinary degree is worth striving for. If you hold this qualification, the world absolutely is your oyster. So sit back and enjoy this, my conversation with the inspiring educator and career lane hopping, Professor Liz Mossop. So welcome to the show, Liz Mossop. It's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And uh, I have a slight confession to make, Dave, which is before I listened to your podcast, which I have listened to a few now, I thought you were Australian. So there you go. I have no idea where I got that from. But anyway. (laughs) In fairness to that, I do have a bit of a jacked up accent. (laughs) And I did live and work in Australia for seven years. That's probably where it came from then. Yeah. Right. And I do have an Australian daughter and I do have citizenship. So technically you are correct. Okay. Well, it's not a bad fault to have at all, is it? So <laughs> I consider it a strength. Absolutely. Scottish and, Australian. Um, you know, Scottish Australian. Exactly. And huge shout out to the Aussies Absolutely. Uh, down under. <laughs> Absolutely. Love you guys. So Liz, I've been, we had an, a, go, a somewhat abortive attempt at having an interview in a land that seems so far away. Go now. Yeah, I think it's like, like three or four years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. 
when we can actually get in cars and go drive places and not worry about that and, and meet up. And I, my vehicle broke down <laughs> about 20 miles north of Brighton. So that didn't work out. I was really sad about that. But in some ways, I'm also, this just gives us an opportunity because there's like another three years of, <laughs> wow, what stuff has happened? And just, I think the relevance of this conversation is just, I mean, it would be relevant then, but now I'm like, oh boy, okay, this is going to be a doozy. We are going to get into a lot of your work, but I want to go back because I'm always fascinated. And this podcast is principally about the person and the story and the work. So I'm kind of want to take it back to, we'll go into your move in toward teaching. And, and that is just such, you know, the, the curiosity you have in that part of your career. But how on earth does Liz Mossop get into veterinary medicine in the first instance? And what on earth possessed you to choose Edinburgh Med School? <laughs> That's one of the best choices I've ever made, I have to say. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, we should talk about the, the worst choices than that. Okay, I'm saying that as a Glasgow grad. Yeah, but, you know, once you're a dick vet, you're always a dick vet. And, uh, yeah, definitely a very special place in my heart. Yeah, so I guess I'm from a really rural background. And um, I grew up in South Lincolnshire where... They don't tend to grow many animals, but they do grow an awful lot of potatoes and bulbs and such like. But I think I always say to people, I can't remember wanting to be anything else other than a vet. Briefly at school, I was told you couldn't possibly be a vet. Therefore, I thought about becoming something else, which I think was a physiotherapist, although that seems like a very long time ago now. Wait, who told you that? <laughs> oh, I was told it at school on numerous occasions. I think it's just this urban myth, isn't it? That, you know, you, you know, being a vet is the hardest thing in the world and you won't possibly get in or get a place or you know, all those kind of things that you get told when you're at school. So, yeah, it was certainly, you know, always sort of presented to me as an impossible task, which I'm afraid to someone like me just makes me want to do it even more. But no, I mean, I, I think my mum is a doctor, so I kind of have a sort of semi-medical background. And actually, I guess that did influence me to some extent. But then I'm really, really squeamish when it comes to human blood. So there was absolutely no way I was going to become a doctor. So I kind of you know, went, well, let's do that, but with a bit of fur. So yeah, it was always going to be animals for me, you know, always grew up with lots of animals, had um, my first animals were guinea pigs and rabbits. I used to have a little breeding uh, scheme that uh, supplied the local pet shops, complete with uh, health records in uh, filofaxes and all sorts of things I used to have. How sad was I? But, uh, you know, all these things kind of shape your uh, identity, don't they? And then, um, yeah, horses came along and, you know, they're always a big thing for me growing up and, yeah, that was just what I wanted to be. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? I sometimes when I talk to, you know, relatives and friends of, of sort of a certain age and you say, oh, you know, what do you want to be? And I think if you don't know where you're headed, it's actually quite hard to motivate yourself at school. I was not academically naturally brilliant, but because I knew what I wanted to do and I was so determined to do it, I worked really hard and got the grades that I needed. And I think that's true for a lot of our colleagues when we talk to them, you know, you just kind of when you're really determined and that's what you want to do, then you do it, don't you? It's it's very self-motivating. It's certainly true in my case as well. Like I'm always much closer at the bottom of the class, but that single-mindedness of just knowing you can't fail or that, that thing's gone. Well, and I think it's not really having a proper plan B, isn't it? It's a bit scary. Think, I better do this because I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't do this. So, yeah. Every other plan B was so ridiculous that I think my parents were just like, we will do whatever <laughs> is required. To get you into this is a, Right, this is a trend right Yeah, absolutely. I'm even amazed, like even in your early life, I'm getting, okay, so I was like, it wasn't even an accidental breeding colony of guinea pigs. It's like, oopsies, <laughs> they 
fucked up that thing again. And now there's lots of tribbles. It's like, so it was organized. There was records. There was yeah. everything. Oh, yes. I always say to my colleagues, my brain works in a series of diagrams and sort of arrows. And so, yeah, I think that started quite young of who goes with who. And those ones haven't had babies before. So we'll try those ones this time and see what they look like and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, fascinating. And luckily, you know, for me, I had parents who were quite supportive of such interesting entrepreneurial ventures, which I suspect never made any money and just made me sad when they died. But anyway. <laughs> actually, the first thing I wrote down here was you actually created, it didn't, you didn't create a breeding unit, you created a little business. <laughs> I don't think my parents saw it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask a little bit more about where that part of your character came from. Because when you look forward in your career, you focus a lot on human factors and you know your early careers in practice but then even moving into your academic career you've never lost touch with that sort of real world experience that practitioners on the front line are having and that is a business experience but it's coming back from that formative environment so i've got two two questions the first one is uh, there's a funny backstory from my own start i'm just sort of i always want to compare and contrast epic early start business failure <laughs> failed and how they propelled you forwards it was it your mum that was a doctor? Yes, my mum, yeah. What did your father do? I'm keen to know where this organised business side of things comes from. So my dad is, yeah, very interesting career. So my dad started as a solicitor, the sort of town solicitor, and ran a, you know, fairly typical small town legal discussions and all those kind of things, whatever solicitors do. And then when I was 13, my dad um, went into the church. So my dad's a Church of England vicar. He's retired now, but he was. So he had a complete change of direction of career, which... Of course, at the time for me, age 13 and my brothers and sister was quite traumatic because we'd lived in the same place all our lives. And, you know, we had to up sticks and move and for him to do his training. And then, of course, after that, you know, it's a it's a vicar's life. So you move around a little bit. And yeah, I mean, I think at the time for me, it was traumatic, but actually it absolutely shaped me in that, you know, it was built part of my resilience and my ability to adapt and change and all those kind of things, Um, you know, you look back, don't you? You think, gosh, actually, that did, you know, really quite heavily influence who I am today. And I think my dad in in himself, I mean, he is a pretty amazing person, you know, first of all, to do that and to be bold enough to do it, you know, because obviously he was very, very driven to do it and to do it in a way that, you know, actually took us all with him. And, you know, we, we all stayed the course, so to speak, and, you know, then see him develop into doing something which is incredibly challenging. And he deliberately has always had very challenging inner city mostly East London parishes and done a lot of interfaith work and you know it's all about people and actually I look at what he does and I think what I do what you do it's all about people and it's all about managing relationships and expectations and you know I'm sure a lot of my skills have kind of come from him you know and from my mum as well but yeah it's certainly interesting to reflect on that now. I always think there's a lot of overlap between, I mean, obviously completely different contexts, but there's not a lot of overlap between anyone who is there broadcasting something. You know, there's a performer, there's an audience, yes. your father from the pulpit to the congregation, you know, you to an extent from the lectern or the, yeah, the, it is a lectern, right? To the lecture theater, veterinarians in the exam room have always thought that it, it is a show. It, the operating theatre in the UK, as we call it, or the, you know, the OR for US colleagues, you know, that's the wrong room to call a theatre, although there is <laughs> quite a lot of that goes on. It, the performance happens in the consultation room, in the exam room. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a broader discussion, isn't it, around skill sets and 
to me that's part of the beauty of my veterinary training is that whilst what I do now is quite far removed from being a vet I I use exactly the same skills every day as I used as a vet in mixed practice and sometimes my colleagues will say to me oh gosh that was stressful or oh you dealt with that really well or you know whatever difficult conversation it is we're having and and you sort of think I always kind of think to myself yeah but it wasn't you know it wasn't dealing with an angry farmer or you know all these sort of things that I used to do on a day-to-day basis you know compared to that it you know it wasn't too bad so yeah it's all about context isn't it it is i just recorded a little segment for a piece of work i was doing and i referenced this book (laughs) which if you're in the podcast you won't see what i'm holding up just now and since this is a podcast that's everyone Uh, so it's james Herriot, all creatures great and small and it's the copy i got for christmas one year so it was first published in 1975 okay that's a bit later than i thought Yeah, and this edition was published in 76, which is the year I was born, (laughs) (laughs) just to date me. But I know, I mean, the years have been kind, right? (laughs) Jesus. And this one, I mean, the pages are so grey and old. I got it for Christmas, and I must have been 10, 11, because I I first went in a vet clinic when I was 13. Now, and one of the presentations I was giving, I was just reading from page one, the excerpt, which is him describing laying face down on his cobbled stone floor in a fruitless attempt to get this calf out with a farmer on the top of a snow-blown hillside, not just with a farmer, but the farmer's pal, I think an uncle, who is just, it's like he's the worst, most hostile audience ever of passive-aggressive and quite aggressive, basically a torrent of verbal abuse being poured on this poor vet, struggling, and you think, goodness me like how did anybody even stick it out at all in those days fast forward to today listen here's a question to really dig into maybe the first of the big questions i could ask this question of a lot of people but i'm much more interested in the answer from you given the rest of your career and your research you started career in general practice you did the mixed animal bet bit whereabouts in the country were Um, you doing um, that a bit of a mixture so lincolnshire and then nottingham Okay, all right. So a little south of where James Herriot <laughs> did his thing with, you know, equivalently, you know, grouchy farmers. Knowing what you now know about learning development, building resilience and holding out in a career and knowing what we now know or what we think we know about what's happening in the job market now and the struggles with resilience mm. that people have. I wonder if you can just describe some of your early experiences And how you worked your way through those? Like, were there any real formative ones that you felt, geez, that really shaped me? Because I think of all the questions I can ask you, like almost asking you to talk about how you progressed through your parts of your early career feel like some of the most valuable things, the stories that that we can all learn from. Are there any things that jump out from you and shaped you or processes you went through to sort of really build that steel yeah, and first thing I'll say is I definitely don't have much steel about me, you know, and I think I think this is often one of the misunderstandings around resilience. It doesn't mean you're indestructible, you know, that's a human impossibility. And, mm. you know, it's different for all of us and our resilience is different in different contexts. So, you know, I might be very resilient when I'm doing yet another prolapse with my great friend Norrie, who, who now runs the practice um, that I, I first started out in. And those experiences certainly shaped me they were pretty horrendous at times and you know we were doing things we were perhaps you know not particularly confident at doing I'm not sure about the competence bit but you know we certainly we had to often sort of stand on our own two feet and just sort of go with it but I think 
you know, your resilience is definitely influenced by people around you. And to me, what got me through being an, a new graduate in a mixed practice in a very rural area where perhaps, you know, having a, a young girl, as I was often termed, walk on the farm wasn't top of their list, was was the people around me. You know, I had a brilliant couple of senior vets in the practice who, you know, were always willing to mentor and come out and help you if you're in a sticky situation and really did support me early on. And Nori, my friend who I just mentioned, who we were both new graduates in the practice together. We got on really well. We helped each other out. We drank a lot of wine together. We still drink a lot of wine together on occasions. You know, that that is to me, what is my resilience? It's not so much about my own personal attributes it's actually about what I build around me to help myself it sounds a bit selfish doesn't it but actually you know you've got to have those things around you to support you life is not a solo venture is it you know if you think you can do everything on your own you're gonna pretty quickly (laughs) let's face it we need both personal relationships to support us at home and people out there to support us and that's sadly where you know you do see it going wrong sometimes is when that structure is not in place and the team is not behaving in the way it should behave and the culture of the organization is not supportive of making mistakes or helping look at the systems and the processes rather than just focusing on the individual it's a long-winded way of saying there were lots of things that happened to me early on in my career many of which I probably shouldn't repeat in a podcast but um yeah you know overall I would say it was the team and you know making sure that I didn't know it at the time but you know if you build those relationships early on and you sort of put the the goodwill in the bank so to speak and help other people then actually it comes back to you in 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 means doesn't it and yeah that's certainly something that i i can think about now relationships seem like they matter less to people or the i don't know if it's the prioritization or if it's the systems that now vets move out into you know we're seeing and i'm not taking the conversation in this way to intend bashing anybody but certainly i'm going to throw occasional hypotheses at you and then I feel certain that you'll add color to them or burn them <laughs> in, 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 burn them in midair, which is just fine. But one of the things that I had, that you had, that many of us had, we went into a, a situation where there were partners and practices. Corporations or limited companies were still there, but they still had directors that were senior veterinarians on the ground. A lot of and that gave you confidence because you you know we're all going to screw up like we all have stories that none of us will repeat on podcasts with good reason including i have to say the bosses who were my mentors because i remember hanging out at, at the bars of bsava and and this this i've noticed to be an absolutely cross-cultural cross-continental phenomenon that the people who are you believe and understand to be complete rock stars in the thing that they do when they're hanging around <laughs> the bars most of the time they're talking about they're one-upping each other on the most epic failures that they had because they're, yeah. they're the funniest things looking back on that they have experienced, how they've even survived or got away with it or whatever. You know, the swab left in, the most crazy piece of equipment left behind in a surgery, all of these things. Well, we're human. Really yeah, terrible. We're yeah. Well, we're human. Right. But now that was the environment I graduated out into where failure was... I mean, it wasn't acceptable, but it wasn't also a write-off moment. And somebody was there to go, yeah, that sucks. Can I share my sucky story with you? And it was kind of, okay. I mean, you get your butt kicked as well, but you know, there was always that other supportive element to it. When people are graduating now into environments where 
the senior leadership seems an awful lot further. Like that experience, those skills are spread a bit more thinly as as ownership structures are changing. And you have less experienced vets now in, in what are very senior roles. They're big roles to be taking on. Like being a clinical director three years out of clinic, I didn't know my butt from my elbow <laughs> three years out of clinic, let alone how to manage people. I couldn't manage myself. So it's a big ask. When that is your support network, and then, you know, is that an influencing factor in the fact that people seem to be struggling, do you think? It's a good question, isn't it? Because equally, you know, I'm sure there are many new graduates of our era who actually didn't have great bosses who supported them and did just, you know, let them right. mess up and, you know, say, well, tough luck, mm-hmm. you know, sorry. You know, and I know certainly a lot of my friends from my year left their first job quite quickly because they didn't have that environment. I mean, I'm sure there's some truth in what you say. And, and I guess the important thing is that, you know, where that is the situation where actually there's somebody, you know, relatively junior in a, in a management position, it doesn't mean they can't do it. It just means they need some support and some guidance and some development time to be able to do it properly. And if that's missing, then, you know, that is certainly a concern. And I think it's certainly something that we thought long and hard about when we we developed the Nottingham curriculum was, you know, what, what are the things that are missing from how vets are trained at the moment and the challenge is then always you know so the business skills is a good one actually because the challenge then always is you know so if I said that to you you would say oh well you know you might say well students don't when they come out they don't understand how a veterinary practice runs they don't understand the business side of things and so that's really difficult for me to work with them and so we say right well we'll teach them those business skills but actually to convince those students in that moment that these are skills that they need is really really difficult and certainly yes. we failed on a number of occasions trying to teach lots of heavy theory and all that kind of thing, because we all think, oh, this is jolly important. Let's teach this. And actually, students don't want to know that. At the end of the day, what they want to know is how to spare bitch, you know, most of them. And, and some of them, of course, you know, when you start to talk to them and develop them in different ways, they will understand. And many of them do understand the importance of the other skills. But it is it is a difficult one. It's a difficult sell early on, in, certainly early on in the curriculum, because, you know, you want to be a vet. I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to save ponies' lives and those kind of things. It, running a business wasn't top of my list, most definitely not. So I think, yeah, so coming back to your question, I, I'm sure it's partly influential. I mean, role models in general, mentors, are so important to us as we develop our own sort of identity and decide where we're going to go. And if that is missing from the structure in which you are working, that, that is hard because, you know, you haven't got that person to think, that's where I want to be or that's how I want to behave or more importantly that's the value set that I sign up to because I can see this person demonstrating this value set that's actually really important to me too so it is a challenge. That's perhaps a a, a good way to move into your teaching career and I'm kind of curious first of all what actually moved you in that direction and I suppose it's it's actually as, as much a research career as, as a teaching career. So I'd love to know what moved you in that direction. And then perhaps talk about Nottingham, because something a bit different happened at that point in the development of veterinary education, certainly over here in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And perhaps that branches out into a broader conversation about how education needs to change to meet <laughs> the needs of, I honestly, I'm, I was going to say the industry, the profession, the pets, the Absolutely. animals of the future given the state of where we're at but let's back that up to first part which is 
you know, your transition away from practice into academia? Yeah. What um, well, it certainly wasn't in my head a process of transitioning to academia. And I think certainly your, your comment of, oh, and you're also a researcher. I'm like, am I? Because, you know, <laughs> that's kind of just something I do on the side because it's interesting and you sort of have to do it as an academic. But I certainly don't yeah. label yeah. myself as that. Yeah. So um, I was working in practice and, you know, like most of us, um, doing a lot of training of veterinary nurses and kind of really enjoyed it. And then I guess kind of understood partly through uh, my husband who's an NHS doctor kind of how things are done differently and how actually education and training is a bit of a science and you know lots of doctors do training in teaching because that's you know a sensible thing to do because you're going to be teaching lots of other doctors and thought oh well maybe that's something I could do because I really enjoyed it and I was sort of at that point in my career where you know you get to that stage don't you where you, you know you've been assistant for a while and you think well what's next and you know I, I wasn't convinced I wanted to be go up the specialist route and you know, I wasn't convinced I wanted to own a practice. So it's kind of, well, you know, what what do I do? And and so I thought, well, you know, that, that sounds really interesting. So I thought, right, well, I'll get a qualification then. So I signed up to do a master's in medical education at the medical school in Nottingham because I was working in Nottingham at the time and just really loved it. I mean, you know, it was it was a bit of a revelation, really, that actually there was method in the madness of how we're taught. And there was, you know, lots of research and, you know, lots of people who've done lots of things over the years say, well, this is the right way to teach. And perhaps actually, you know, we haven't been teaching the right way. And, and there's no, you know, often there's no right or wrong answer in these things, is there? But it was a fascinating sort of reveal, if you like, of of how we learn and, yeah, and also how we assess and how we, you know, all, all those sorts of things that, that come into it. So I started doing that um, part time and then just got gradually sucked a bit more into that world. And then, you know, it just so happened in a serendipitous way, as, it, as these things often do, that there was a vet school opening up just up the road. And so I basically... Banged, that was yeah, lucky. I basically banged on the door and said, I think I might be useful to you because I don't think many vets have a... not. I hadn't even finished it at that stage, have a sort of semi-finished qualification in education. And uh, bless him, Gary and uh, Malcolm, the, the dean and the, the deputy head of school, went, oh, yes, we think you'd be quite good. Would you like to do this job? Clearly, I did have to apply for it properly. But um, yeah, it was definitely a bit of a, you know, we all have these sort of serendipitous moments, don't we, in our career. And it was definitely was a bit of luck that fell my way. And when I first started in at the vet school in Nottingham, um, it was when it first opened and I was still working part time in practice, in equine practice at the time. And then, you know, gradually the the um, academic world took over and uh, the vet school started to grow. So I, I ended up full time there fairly swiftly. I think I proved my worth, hopefully. They may not agree, but... <laughs> They're like, oh, you're quite useful. We'll keep you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of interested in one of the first things you said there, which, you know, you start to learn there was method in the madness and that we were doing things wrong and you loved it. What, what did you particularly love and take away from that? And what are some of the mistakes that you think were immediately obvious to you? Like, wow, we've just been doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think the really thing wrong. that really grabbed me was the idea of you know experiential learning so learning through doing rather than just through sitting and listening because you know like me I'm sure your education was fairly traditional and it was mostly consisted of lectures and I knew from my personal experience that you know lectures were great in their own way but actually you know when I sat there and thought about it how much of that could I remember compared to how much I'd actually been shown by doing and you know we all know the answer to that so it kind of made me think gosh you know is there a different way of doing this and of course you know medical education is always quite a long way ahead of 
veterinary education and of course you know the medics had already started doing some really interesting things around problem-based learning and you know lots more workplace-based learning in a lot more sort of structured way than we had at the time and I think when I went through my veterinary degree I had no understanding of whether my education was good or bad which is quite interesting in a way isn't it particularly when you know, I compare it to our student experience now where students are absolutely, you know, they completely get what works and what doesn't work for them because we spend so much time asking them in the right way what works and what doesn't work and what's good and what's bad and all those things. So I think it just hooked me from the point of view of, well, maybe this is somewhere that I can make a difference. And I wasn't a very confident teacher when I started out. In fact, I'll be honest, I was terrified because I thought, well, you know, I'm only I was only what seven years qualified you know what business do I have teaching veterinary undergraduates you know this is ridiculous but actually of course that's the whole point of being a good teacher is that you're a facilitator of somebody else's learning and it doesn't matter that I'm not a specialist in x y and z you know what I can help students to understand is still extensive and that's not just knowledge of course that's also all about skills and really importantly attitudes and all those other things that we all know make a really good vet so I think, yeah, that was a bit of a revelation to me in in many different ways. How did you go about putting the curriculum together at Nottingham? Was it a case of looking at, okay, this is wrong, let's do the opposite of that? I'm pretty sure the answer to that is no. (laughs) But when you're going to create a curriculum and you're going to put something together, I'm just curious what this is so alien (laughs) in so many ways to somebody who's, you know, like myself, who's been immersed in business for my whole life but also somebody who's responsible for teaching people and mentoring people. When you get to the start of that, it's there's so much. It, I can imagine it is just completely overpowering, overwhelming, and it's so easy to fall into the same traps that, that everybody else always made by having to squeeze this in here and academic interests start taking over. And yeah, How did you guys go about putting it together differently? Well, I'm glad you said you guys, because it certainly wasn't me. And in fact, I joined the vet school the same day the first students joined the vet school. So a lot of the the work had already been done, really excellent work about the principles of how we were going to teach slightly differently. The idea of having some problem oriented learning. So clinical relevance, we called it at the time, but essentially, you know, letting the students work through their own problems rather than work through clinical problems we presented them with. In order to right. came out a bit wrong, didn't it? In order to in order to understand, you know, the, the preclinical There might have been some wisdom in the slip though. <laughs> true, yeah. But yes, I mean it, it's definitely a sort of um, a defined process and the, the modern way of thinking about curricula has changed. So it used to be that we would front load and think, right, well, here's lots of content and let's build it up and you know, let's start with anatomy because that's what we start with and that's the, you know, then eventually we'll get to letting them in clinics. But now what we do is we have what we call outcomes based education. The first thing we think about is, well, where do we want the students at the end of the five year period? What are the competencies we want them to be able to develop? And then we work backwards from that point. So, you know, whilst when we started at Nottingham, we didn't completely design you know, what was going to happen in years three, four and five at the start. We, we had an, an understanding of what would happen in those years before we actually started, you know, with the first year and the second year. And, you know, then, of course, we made decisions about you know based a lot on what was happening in medical education but also yeah of course you bring in your own experiences and you know some people have come from other vet schools um so you know there was a bit of well you know this is something it's such an amazing opportunity and it's so unusual in in the academic world to have a completely blank sheet of paper to set up a new curriculum yeah and so you know sometimes people come along and say well why can't other people do it like this or why can't they take this thing and you know because this is clearly the right way to do it and you know well 
you know, if you run a curriculum for X number of years, you can't just change it overnight. You know, it takes a lot of negotiation and, you know, challenge. You know, You've got a lot of tenured employees. Who... Exactly. So we had this amazing opportunity and we had some great leadership and some really fantastic professional service staff, as well as academics, particularly our school manager, who's an incredibly innovative person. And so, you know, it was an opportunity. And again, we talk about luck and serendipity in careers. For me, it was this amazing thing. And I, you know, again, I probably didn't quite realise it at the time, how lucky we were. But about, I can remember about three years in, somebody said to me, well, you do realise, you know, what an amazing opportunity it is to have a completely blank sheet of paper to start from. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I get it now. But um, that's the process we go through. And then, of course, you know, the important thing about Nottingham was that we did um, we did a lot of discussions with stakeholders. So, you know, it wasn't just what that group of people wanted. It was absolutely, well, what does the profession require? What do local yes. practitioners think? What do national practitioners You know, there was lots and lots of discussion and, and feedback. This seems to be a block for more traditional vet schools who perhaps are more adamant about what a vet should look like from an academic sense, but seem to be quite blind to what the market actually requires in the future. I'm not sure that's entirely true because, of course, all all schools do have stakeholder meetings. You know, they have to. It's part of the sort of quality requirements. I guess it's a question of, again, are your structure and processes and your infrastructure, if you like, if your school set up to actually be able to deliver that yeah and you know are you assessing students in the right way to make sure that's where they've got to so I think in defense of you know what we might call the more traditional vet schools it's actually quite hard to move the the oil tanker and get it to do something slightly different and actually veterinary education particularly you know I speak specifically about the UK has changed hugely in the last 15 years and you know all the schools I wouldn't say there's any that are traditional they are all modernizing and forward thinking and really doing things differently which is fantastic to see it takes a long time then for that to impact in the way we all want to see it impact but I do believe it is happening. Is that a purposeful thing I know there are conversations and sort of committees of educators from each of the institutions who will go out and talk about these things so is it you know from a Nottingham point of view really blazing that that sort of individual trail I'm kind of keen to ask about some of the results and how you've measured. You know, you talk about, okay, the objective, what does the market want? I have the sense that it's very unlikely you wouldn't have found a way to measure the effectiveness of what's gone after. Have you done any studies that would put some form of some quantitative number on the quality of the graduate that would come through a process like Nottingham? And also then, that's a competitive advantage for the school, but then sharing it for the greater good because... Education changes, develops. You know, you've seen other courses now moving to a much more, you know, similar approach where it's much more structured around the case from a much earlier point in the the sort of more modern learning process. There's so many questions that can sort of stem off of that. But I think the first one is what was the impact of the school? Like, did you measure it? And is there a comparative way of telling? What is a quality graduate? I know you've got a lot of research (laughs) in this area. Yeah, I mean, it's a really complex question. And as you can imagine, all schools are really interested in the quality and inverted commas of their graduates. And and it's actually, you know, really difficult to know, you know, how do you measure that? One of the things that we did at Nottingham, which happens at a lot of the other schools as well, is we were really keen to, you know, evaluate what we were doing. We thought that was really important. So we'd come at designing the curriculum and the programme very much with an evidence-based 
approach in, in mind, so using evidence from elsewhere, but then we wanted to develop our own evidence and, and show what we were doing was making a difference to our students and then to our graduates at the end. So we very much um, had a culture of evaluating what we were doing. And often that evaluation and, you know, that culture is still there, even though even though I'm not there anymore, it's definitely still there. Um, it's part of part of the leadership um, de- culture, most certainly. And that's often small evaluations, but together they add up and develop a picture. From the point of view of actually looking at the quality of the graduates, all the vet schools do a graduate survey. So all the vet schools survey both graduates and employers of those graduates. Um, that's now done nationally, in fact, through the, um, the Vet Schools Council. So every employer of a new graduate has an opportunity to say, this is what's good, this is what's not good. Now, what we don't do is compare those data sets because it wouldn't really be an equal comparison because of the fact that all curricula are slightly different. So inevitably, you know, if you go to a certain vet school, you will come out with more of an emphasis on a certain area, either a certain species or a certain you know, way of, of development. So it wouldn't really be fair. And there's nuance exactly, about job yeah, choice exactly. and the appropriateness of selection exactly. that can influence the, the employer score yeah. beyond just And I think also yeah. some of the things you'd want to measure. So if I ask you, well, actually, what makes a great graduate? Some of those things are very difficult to measure quantitatively. You know, they're actually incredibly hard. And, you know, okay, you could turn it into a Likert scale, couldn't you? Of Well, I think this person's five out of five but my five out of five might be different to your five out of five. So it's actually quite a difficult thing to do. And so I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that all schools are on a cycle of continuous improvement. So all schools want to listen and hear what's not right, what's great, you know, and then try to understand whether that's just that individual graduate that, you know, maybe that's just an area they didn't particularly focus on, or is this something that actually is inherently, you know, something we need to change within the curriculum, either the structure or the focus or, you know, whatever way we assess or or whatever it is. So it's a complex question to ask, and I'm afraid I don't have a straightforward answer. But what I can tell you is that all the sort of innovative things that we did, so thing, you know, at the vet school, like, you know, portfolio assessments and, and, you know, different types of workplace-based assessments, there are quite a lot of people who've done PhDs, masters, or just small evaluative studies looking at those things in order to work out if they worked or not. And you know, not all of them do. And or, or sometimes you can't show that they do in a sort of quantitative, positivistic way. But qualitatively, we might be able to say, well, actually, we think there is a difference here. But yeah, it's an ongoing, I would say it's an ongoing evaluation, Dave, as well. You can't, you know, because there's then the longitudinal aspect of it, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like it's something that you'd be looking for trends relating to, you know, bigger cohorts over time, looking for blips that might then need greater understanding. But it's such a complex and diverse environment into which our graduates are dispersed. And and disperse is really the right word, isn't it? Because they're, yes, general practice or clinical practice where most end up. But it's one of the things that I think confounds everybody in certainly the clinical side of the profession you know there's no escaping the fact that right now it feels like we have a a perfect storm of difficult things on our plate more complex operating environment or a less efficient operating environment with covid protocols an increase and i put inverted commas there because there does seem to be conflicting data around and whether there is much of an increase but anywhere from five to forty percent depending on which mouth you want to listen to and certainly some newer data from the US is showing that actually there's not that much of an increase. And if it is, it's more puppies and kittens. But certainly it feels like there's an increase. 
and perception is perhaps the greatest mm. thing that's at play in the psychology of our workforce. You've got a sense, and again, choosing my words carefully here, a sense that the level of happiness and engagement in the profession is not high and wasn't, that was a pre-COVID thing, uh, you know, certainly looking at Vet Futures data on numbers of people who are either leaving or thinking about leaving the profession and whether they feel the careers matched their expectations, those numbers always look depressing. And so the question I think one gets to and amongst that is, are we succeeding in veterinary education? You know, that's the other the other part is this, the level of student stress that you hear reported now. Again, it's anecdotally, and I, I get that the you know the 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 plural of anecdote isn't data, <laughs> but it's still. I recall vet school so fondly as being one of the best periods of my life that probably my liver does not recall <laughs> that fondly. It was a great experience, and yes, it was a, a little stressful around exam time. But people now seem extremely wound up about it. I guess, you know, again, you have been so focused on this area. It's, this is why I want so badly to speak to you, because it's like, I feel like you could just cut through this and actually speak to this with a little more certainty than all of us gum flappers who like to make noise, but not necessarily with a heck of a lot of evidence behind it. So please put us right on what your experience or, or your data has said about, you know, are things getting worse or are we talking ourselves into the quagmire a bit here? And let's then talk. There's further questions based on that answer. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is that often we perceive or think about veterinary education in a very truncated way. So you've just sort of nicely encapsulated that there by saying, oh, vet school, you know, it was great and blah, blah. Well, your education does not stop at the end of vet school. And to me, the challenges we have in the profession around retention and, you know, recruiting the right students and all these sorts of things that, you know, are constantly fired at us. It's got to be a joint venture. It's got to be the vet schools working with the practitioners and those out there doing the job to say, OK, so at some point in this pipeline, we're doing something wrong. The chances are we're probably doing something wrong all the way through, you know, which for some students, it's a bit like the Swiss cheese diagram, isn't it? For some students, they're just slipping straight through that gap and it is not for them and they're falling out at the other end. But for other students and new graduates, there will be things we can adjust, which means that they do retain in the clinical profession and, you know, have a fulfilling and enjoyable career. I also think, and this is, you know, shamelessly stolen from my colleague Martin Cake in in Australia's work, we often focus on the negative, so the things that don't make our career great. And actually, you know, the positive psychologists say we should think about actually what does make our career and profession great. We spend so long trying to work out what's going wrong, we don't actually think about what's going right and do more of that. So, you know, that's a difficult one as well, isn't it? We're almost maybe not actively selected as problem solvers, but certainly inherently drawn to the career as it is a problem solvery thing. So that feels like that's baked into our being. As most professions are, of course. Yeah, your your job as Uh a profession is is to solve other people's problems. So, you know, you're right. That is kind of the culture of what we do. But sometimes, and, and this is, you know, interesting conversation with Martin over many a beer in the past at conferences, you know, we need to flip that a bit. And, you know, he talks about this concept of eudaimonia, which is about, you know, life balance and life fulfillment basically balance is probably the wrong word but fulfillment in your life and you know what is it about the veterinary educational cycle process which goes from 
pre-vet school all the way out to the end of your career because you know you are continually learning that means we don't reach that status of eudaimonia and of course there's other things that come into it as well like your personal life and those kind of things but actually you know we as a profession have got better I think at thinking about how we support and how we help but actually what are the positive things that really make it great you know what are the things that you and I know really get us out of bed in the morning as well, I'm not a clinician anymore, but as a clinician, you know, I didn't stop it because I didn't like it. I stopped it because I had another opportunity. I loved being a clinician. You know, it was a it was a fabulous, fabulous job and, you know, incredibly fulfilling. And then obviously, you know, ensuring that is baked into what we deliver is, is just so important. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a tendency and certainly, you know, you, I, I quite... I have seen this, you know, reasonably frequently through various, you know, committees, groups I've sat on that involve both practitioners and educators in the same room at the same time, shock horror. You know, well, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Well, it's nobody's fault, is it? Actually, this is where we're at. And, and you know, it's only by working together we're going to fix it. And for many vets in our profession, it's not actually broken. They do enjoy their career and they, you know, they have a really fulfilled time. So, yeah, you're full of big questions, which is good. But uh, I'm not sure I have the answers. <laughs> OK, I've got a little question, which I which I think this could be quite good fun, actually. <laughs> so let's take the positive psychology thing. And I want to play a game where we pass the parcel on. What did you like about practice? Because okay. what, what you said there about wanting to leave practice, like I'm not in clinical practice or very, very rarely now. I occasionally go and cover shift. But 20 years in clinical practice, I loved it. I loved it. But there's just something else that came along that I loved and needed to do, you know, more. Yeah, yeah, and that, that bit of career was fine. But what was so horrible to hear? I mean, this is the tragedy in my mind. It's like when somebody wants to be a vet for 10 years, that's, I mean, five years of education, maybe eight years in the US, and then they get out and they're a year into it, people are burning oh. out. There's that other peak where people three to five years get into it and go, is this it? Is this all I've got? That feels like, God, that's tragedy. Like there's so, there's such a brilliant career. So let's play past the what did you like about veterinary medicine in practice, Liz Mossop. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done this before, but let's roll with it. I'll start with a big one then. The clients. I mean, you know, that to me is, is the same as my job now, the students, you know that's the great thing it's the annoying thing it's the frustrating thing but it's also the positive side of you know being a vet right that's too big i've got <laughs> to get you to dig in Sorry, you that wanted that's, more cheating. <laughs> that's like you just ripped off 16 layers of parcel in one <laughs> sorry about that what in particular about clients can you get to the essence of what it is about that interaction because it's not just clients or pet owners you just said right there your yeah. students as well i think and it's gonna sound a bit oh, hopefully get some moans but I'm somebody who is motivated by the wish to help other people and solve their problems and to me as a vet in practice it was feeling like I had value in that small town in which I worked because you know I did euthanize the old dog or I fixed the lame horse or whatever it was and that client maybe was a bit grumpy to see me to be in because they wanted a senior partner and then actually I won them round and that was really rewarding because you know it built a relationship that then I could use and go back to that person and feel like I had a client. And that's incredibly rewarding, isn't it? Particularly as a new vet, there was a, there was somebody, I, I don't know who they were, but I was just looking at Twitter earlier and there's a, a new graduate posting and saying, you know, Oh wow, I've had my first day in practice and you know, it wasn't too bad and I survived and it feels so amazing to call myself a vet. And it made me think of that first time, you know, when you pick up the phone and you go, Oh, hi, it's the vet speaking. And you think, Oh God, that's me. You know, right. <laughs> 
really really that I'm the vet now yes and I have to know something but you know it, it's incredibly rewarding from that point of view because it's about the relationships isn't it it's about those people who you know are, are benefiting from from the care of your animals and of course it's about the animals but I think we quickly discover that as much as you, you love animals as a teenager somebody else's lame or you know pus ridden cat is maybe not the kind of animal you're going to love on the surface you want to do the best for it and you want to improve its welfare but actually i'd rather go home and love my own animals at home than, than somebody else's <laughs> that is it okay I like. what's yours it's similar it's offset slightly but it was always and it's actually it's a bit ironic actually but it was the sense of being a part of a community yeah, absolutely it was a sense of contribution was a big one for me and and that came from my background and growing up in rural Fife in Scotland and zooming around in the hills of you know the rolling hills of Fife and the large animal vets would knock off at four o'clock and I thought oh this is this this is the life this is great and then then we did it in summer (laughs) in winter I remember stood there in our freezing fields trying to get blood draws in the tail veins of a bunch like 30 head of cattle in February it was dark at like 2 30 in the evening it was snowing I couldn't feel my hands luckily because the cows were knocking seven bells out I just thought yeah nah this is so not for me but it was a community it was it was it was a sense of being a well and also you know that sense of being part of that team in the practice as well I think you know it's a very similar feeling isn't it feeling valued feeling like you're contributing to you know an overall aim and again you know that that comes through in many walks of life doesn't it in many careers that that you know certainly when I think about my career what motivates me is feeling like I'm contributing either to an individual student or to the greater good of the university and often that's you know through helping a colleague or you know doing something gosh I'm I'm sounding like I'm a right (laughs) sounds a bit much doesn't it but you know what I mean it's that is motivating isn't it it makes you want to do your job it's not about the salary it's actually about who you're helping and the salary helps of course but it's you know it's much more than that isn't it Oh, a heck of a lot more. You know, as you were saying that, an image came into your head. It's funny the way that smells or sounds or certain images and certain things are anchored so firmly in your mind. But you just, you brought something, you said something that just brought this really evocative, crystal clear image in my head. Do you remember the blue, and it was a blue sticker with a white writing that all vets had on their car? And it was produced by one of the anesthetics, the companies that made anesthetics. It's long since gone away. And it said vet on call. Oh, I wanted one of those so badly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so bad. Like I wanted a Peugeot 205 <laughs> with one of them. And I once got to drive one of the vet's cars, like when I was 17. And I was like, oh my God, I've made it. This is the best feeling ever. It was such a tiny thing. But it mattered so much. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, you know, now we're talking about status and, you know, that professional status, which is something I'm, I'm quite interested in. But, you know, actually that comes in return to for what you give, doesn't it? So it's, you know, we talk about our contract with society as a, as a profession. You know, we are here to maintain and improve animal welfare. And in return, we do get a status and a certain feeling. And actually, yeah, to me, yes. that is part of the reward that's not financial. And it's not about going out and say, oh, aren't I great? I'm a vet, you know, and look at me, aren't I? You know, I'm so-and-so and I'm going to tell you. You know, it's not that at all. It's just it makes you feel it gives you an identity. And that is actually really important for, you know, feeling satisfied about your life, isn't it? Because you know who you are, yeah, which yeah. is really crucial feedback that you matter Mm, yeah you matter absolutely yeah absolutely 
Okay. What's your second thing? <laughs> I already did another one. I already did teams. <laughs> did you? Did you? I thought that was an extension of one, or you were just riffing off of my <laughs> I was just stealing one. I think that's a cheat. I feel like that's a cheat. Liz Moffat, what's up? Are you oh, cheating? Yeah, probably, probably. Okay, number okay, three. Okay, so number three for me. So I think probably that ability to always be doing something new and different and I think that's why we also see a bit of a plateau for some vets. And and certainly when I, you know, I do quite a lot of mentoring. And when I do talk to people who are a bit like, oh, I don't know which way to go next. I'm like, well, in many ways, it doesn't matter what you decide, but find something that's new, even if it's just a new thing in the thing you're doing at the moment. So just a variation. So it doesn't necessarily mean you have to change jobs. But, you know, we're all, you know, vets are all intelligent driven individuals and so your brain needs to be exercised we know this is important for our mental health we need to be learning you know it it helps us to you know look after our our heads and I think sometimes we just get a little bit I've certainly you know I've been there and I'm sure you have as well you get a little bit trapped because it's 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 easy isn't it to kind of just carry on doing the same stuff and then you start thinking oh hang on a minute I feel a bit you know like this isn't quite right and sometimes just that doing something slightly different so you know it doesn't have to be a massive change but just learning something new it is really helpful and certainly that's something that you know when I was in practice I was always a bit of a keen bean when it came to CPD and you know doing something different and learning a new technique or teaching ourselves new surgery out of the book often was but you know it, it really helped to sort of you know engage you and make you again make you feel valued and you know like you were developing and you know becoming something that you weren't yesterday which is important isn't it 100 percent. so i think and in, in fact i think it is this one's twisted this one's really this is messed up but i actually enjoy upset clients and there is a decent why on the back of this because there are few better feelings than when that client calms down, you work through it, and you resolve the conflict. And there are few stronger relationships with clients that I've built. Mm. When they all just go plain sailing, mm. it's fine. But something inevitably goes wrong, and it's the opportunity to show mm. up and to show that you're really it's really easy to care when everything's fine and people are paying their bill and it's a transaction but it's the humanity the values come into play so much more when it's a an upset human being and the opportunity to go far to show you care is there and boy people respond to that so powerfully and as we always say to students you know anger is a secondary emotion there is a reason behind the anger or the upset and actually our skill as a clinician is digging down into that and working out you know what the reason for is for how clients are presenting themselves and I know you know at the moment and you know obviously I speak to colleagues in practice all the time and I know that's incredibly stressful particularly at the moment and it makes me sound very sort of holy than thou saying oh it must be terrible for you you know I can't possibly imagine what some of our colleagues are going through at the moment with the you know the really challenging situations they find themselves in but and it's very well for us sitting here thinking oh go oh yes the difficult clients they're the great great opportunities but actually you know sometimes I think that is it is too much isn't it it is and when they're coming at you a lot or it seems like you know with systems we've got in place and just with the general level of anxiety fear frustration concern job losses uncertainty People's emotions are, are maxed out. So I, I certainly, I think that's a good point. Like, I, I think, you know, I don't enjoy endless complaints. <laughs> but I wonder also, you know, in this moment, it's certainly a challenging time. But sometimes, you know, you can see that we're our own worst enemy when it comes to 
creating opportunities for people who are upset to then take aim at us as a you know we become the outlet for a lot of pent-up stuff that other people experience changing tack and but, but somewhat related and certainly you know covid it's hard not to think and talk about that you know we've now got a generation not generation but certainly two cohorts and possibly a third that's about to experience disruption i hope not yeah. but you know 2020s graduating class the last three months which was really the time i paid an awful lot <laughs> of the most attention i feel like my education was a hockey stick and i sort of the first four years were all about just passing exams and 51 percent was enough and the last year was like right okay you really need to start learning now and then the last three months of that 12 months were, or at least it wasn't three months it was like yeah but the last three months of the course it was like yeah shit's getting real show up stop going to the pub learn 2020 lost that little bit 2021 lost it all and they're now going out into the world with the experiential learnings been blown apart what do we need to do as a profession to support retain help you know you've talked about this partnership between i guess sort of tertiary education but primary veterinary education and really then secondary and ongoing lifetime education if we lose these people oh man that feels like that is going to be such a blow how do we support this group now and indeed perhaps it's the same question that we should have been asking for the groups before that but how do we support our graduates more in the future so that we work our way through this current situation i think you've you've already covered a bit of it because actually to me the first thing is recognition it's been an awful year and of course their experiences of you know the most recent cohort that have graduated you know I've, I've not been involved because I don't work at a vet school anymore but I know from talking to my colleagues that you know it's been incredibly difficult and of course the schools have done as much as possible to try and ensure that you know and of course they still met the day one competences and graduated and you know they can't graduate without that so they have met the competences and they've still been taught all, all the learning objectives they should have been taught but you know of course the, the exposure to the clinical environment has not been you know what it was in the past and and that yeah you, I mean you're right it, it will mean they're on the back foot to some extent I mean I guess you know we do have to remember also that the amount of exposure our students get at the moment under the RCVS's requirements is absolutely gold standard compared to you know the rest of the world so you know we are already doing it quite well the amount they they do a vms and of course you know intramural rotations as well but yes i mean this will certainly you know it's certainly going to have impacted students i suppose the first thing is no graduate is the same so you know if you're somebody now with one of those graduates in your practice and you know i'm sure most people would have done this already sit down with them talk to them about where they are underconfident where they didn't perhaps get as much exposure as they would like just like you would with any new graduate really i would hope and of course you know we have got the new the new rcvs professional development phase uh vet gdp it's called now um which i've been involved in a little bit on the sides which is you know hopefully trying to structure that a little bit more which is you know something the profession definitely needed and you know i mean essentially what i'm talking about is a sort of ongoing reflective process it's something you would do as a mentor or as a as a manager you know it's got to be something that has got some structure around it it can't just be random and whenever we get five minutes we'll do it and i think by being a a genuine person you can go a long way with that underconfident you know perhaps slightly terrified new graduate who actually you know has probably got some amazing skills but doesn't realize it yet and just with that bit of an opportunity 
of support and encouragement and you know giving them a, a near peer mentor as well as a, a you know a more senior mentor can be you know really incredibly helpful um, again it's all very well us sitting here talking about it and I know there are plenty of people who do this brilliantly already but I suppose it comes back to that point that I would make which is that you know education is not it does not stop after five years when the vet school doors change, close you know we have to think about it as a continuum and so if you're out in the profession then I don't know I think you have a sort of moral obligation to support new graduates just like you were hopefully supported and maybe you weren't supported when you came out you know that's the issue but you know let's make a change and make it different and you know I know full well that many people do it absolutely brilliantly and of course we're seeing more and more you know new graduate programs from from the corporates and and you know that's not surprising because they recognize the need to ensure that graduates are supported properly and not just thrown into the lion's den like perhaps we were to some extent which I'm not sure I'm not sure how appropriate, you know, if you take what happened 20 years ago as a new graduate and did that now, that just would not work, would it? Bearing in mind the changes to society and social media and legislation, all these well, things just wouldn't happen. I think those two words, social media, are, I think most of my university experience would have been unpublishable. <laughs> and certainly early. Yeah, I was actually, I was, I just uh, had lunch with a, colleague who's over in from the US and is also he's a wonderful mentor and he probably the 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 generation maybe not generation that's being unkind but certainly you know perhaps a decade on from my vintage you know you we were reflecting on when we graduated what it was like and what our experiences were and in actual fact I was, I was that led me to reflect on some of the stories that were told to me by people I was learning from and mentoring and just the evolution of it's actually the professionalism mm. of veterinary medicine to the point where societal expectations, we're treating an animal, but we're treating a family mm. member much more now. And the stakes are perceived to be higher. But the expectation on professional conduct is, that's actually an interesting one, just because I feel like the universe is moving in two ways there. Professional conduct, you hear stories of you know surgeons showing up drunk to surgeries you know being on call at parties and showing up in their tuxedos were not infrequent I don't know how true they were and then you know you certainly the way that on call was done and run when you or I were graduating is very different as an experience to now in many ways the, the workload has has lifted but now the the glare under which you feel like you do veterinary medicine and the ability for things to be become big news or certainly shared news very quickly is so different that it's it's got to have an impact on the psychology. So I'm, I said, and I know you've interest in professionalism and, and wrote a paper on professionalism defined, and I know that was a, a little while ago, but I'm kind of also, there's a curious divergence here actually in terms of professional expectations on surgeons and, or, or I shouldn't say surgeons because in, you know, veterinarians, let's say that. What has changed and is this a contributor to how we feel we have to behave and the pressures we are putting ourselves under versus what we see showing up in terms of behavior on social media and the way that we're presenting ourselves as a profession yeah. on social media? I feel like this is a place where there may be ah, double standards, hypocrisy. They're not the right words, mm-hmm. but we're stressed to the max by it. But then I see quite a lot of stuff on it. I'm like, Mm, it's tricky isn't it because I think you know social media it's one of those things that we obviously talk to students a lot about and you know how they should 
handle social media and you know what they should and shouldn't be doing on it and actually it's never private you know we all know it's never private and I think that is a realization that unfortunately does hit some people a little bit later than perhaps it should equally if you haven't got another place to vent I can understand why people do use social media I'm not saying it's the right thing to do but I can understand how you perhaps get a little bit sucked into doing it when you know perhaps it's something you've always used and always done and you know actually it's it's a sort of a bit odd taking yourself out from that so I think you know our role as, as educators is certainly to, to help students understand the challenges of social media you know and you know as someone who's used social media for teaching there are huge benefits to social media you know I'm a massive Twitter user not so much recently but you know I love social media I think it's a great tool for good but also there's some really bad bits about it and of course we have a responsibility you know both within the profession and, and within the schools to, to teach students about it and, and help them understand and reflect on you know how they use it and what's good and what and what's bad i often think about you know when i graduated and attitudes to new graduates when i graduated and i and i wonder if you feel the same because you know often now people say oh new graduate you know oh no good anymore well when i graduated 20 years ago it's exactly the same you know i can remember oh new graduates now they're no good anymore yes you know, so, and you think well actually this is just a continuous cycle isn't it of it's not like it was when i graduated 20 or 30 years ago and actually you know the world moves on and the world changes so of course graduates are going to be different and bring a different skill set with them and also undergo very different challenges to when you know when you graduated 30 years ago or or whenever it was or even five years ago it's going to have changed so I do think this just comes back to being I guess as individuals you know just being open-minded about forming opinions and views on on others you know we have to step back and think but actually I'm seeing the situation through my lens and my view on the world and actually, it's quite different for that person because of, you know, what they've done or where they've come from or who they are or, you know, all sorts of reasons. And I think that's that's a hard thing because sometimes, particularly as a profession, you know, we're very much a can do, get on with it, you know, form opinions, make decisions, you know, deal with emergencies. And actually, that ability to step out of that is is really hard. I don't think I've answered your question, but anyway. <laughs> no, I, I actually like the angle you took on it, or, you know, particularly on the venting and finding your tribe and mm. who you spend time with. You know, there's a lot about who you listen to, who you engage with. You form your opinions and you're, you know, off the back of those people. And so if you're spending a lot of time bashing clients on social media or venting about clients, and we all need to vent. Like we course, do need to yeah. get those things anyway, off. We, we wanted to do it in the coffee room. You know, that's where we did it. And now it's just on social media. So, we, you know, we're still doing the same thing. It's right. just unfortunate that if you do it on social media in the wrong way, then of course it's not. Right. And when you're doing it in a group where there are several yeah, thousand exactly. people who also feel the same way, the validation mm. effect is so huge that I, I do fear that we are losing a little bit of sight over the importance of clients and this the, just the power of that relationship i don't within. think we're the only profession you know to be thinking about that so you know you only have to look at our medical colleagues or you know even my world yeah. of higher education you know when people colleagues start student bashing you know that really gets me upset and it always happens doesn't it because it is a human instinct to vent about what's gone wrong and who's frustrated you and I guess it's just about doing it in the right way isn't it we've got to do it but don't do it in a way that's going to get you in trouble further down the line because that's not the way a professional should behave. You know, we should behave in a way that allows us to have that mental health sort of support around certain things, because that's what venting is, isn't it? But doesn't, you know, impact on the view of the profession or, you know, whatever it is we're, we're talking about. 
That's right. You vent with people you trust, then you're actually opening the gateway for people to then have counter opinions and help you work with, with your own position and to formulate new positions. The bit of advice I remember being given was don't drink in the town you're working in, drink in the next town over. And when you're having a pint with your mates, don't use real names of people you talk about. What's the social equivalent of that? So we've not got infinite amounts of time here, but I want to talk about two more things. One is with the sort of experience you've had, I just think you've got a great vantage point on, on learning life and practice and sort of what, potential there are in careers but with what you've experienced what would your advice be to the graduating class you know maybe the 2022 graduating class they're sort of nine months out for the uk of you know they're they're september they're going to go into their their final year uh, in the northern hemisphere in any case and then they've got nine months before they pop out the other side what do they need to be thinking about in terms of, you know, they're connecting to their career and, and bridging over from student life to work life. And what do we as practitioners need to do to support that? I think that's a really a question in really the right way, because as usual, I would say that's a two way thing. It's not just about, you know, it's about what the graduates think and how they prepare themselves. And it's also about then who is going to be out there supporting them. And of course, that's a really good negotiation. You know, employability is all about a two way thing. It's all about what's good for your employer and what's good for you. And that equals, you know, a happy, harmonious working relationship. Which is where we should yeah. get to, because that's how we retain people exactly. and have great cultures. Exactly, yes. I'm, I'm stealing Martin Cake's work again, because um, all his Vet Set to Go project was all about employability and how we get there. Can I say, I love, I love that project. project. I only yeah. came across it because of researching this conversation. Mm, but uh, absolutely brilliant project. Aussie government funded. Absolutely. We're going to link that up in the show notes. But actually, so I'll let you answer the question and perhaps you can speak to that project a little bit because that feels like one that everybody should know. So I suppose the thing that I would, the advice I would give graduates is to go through your final period of training and go into your first job always being open to feedback, listening, asking questions, not being afraid to ask for help, you know, developing that ability to be self-efficacious and understand yourself get to that point where you know who you are and sort of a little bit about what you can do and then go to your employer and say right I want to have this conversation about this I want to actually talk about where I'm at you know okay there's structures and processes and things we're going to have to do but actually can you be my person or who is going to be my person when I am struggling to just to make sure as we talked about at the beginning you've got that support network around you that then gives you that resilient shell to kind of be able to bounce off and and help help yourself because often that help does not come to you. you you have to we talk about asking for help but to me it's about having a structure in place that means asking for help is automatic do you, do you see what I'm saying rather than waiting until that problem where you actually need the help you're systematizing exactly yeah yeah coming at it from a higher point that would be my main piece of advice and I think then the other thing that I always say we've got graduation this week at Lincoln so I've been doing big speeches in in fancy outfits but as we have to I'm afraid but um, the other thing I always just say is just remember about what you can do because you can do a load of stuff rather than what you can't do. And kindness goes a long way. You know, if you're kind to someone, they will be kind back to you in some way or another. The universe has a way of paying back. So try and remember that as well. But um, yeah, enough of the curtain outfits that I have to wear. <laughs> How 
do graduates choose a good job? Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? I think there's a certainly having mentored lots and lots of tutees over the years through getting their first job. It's very easy to grab at the shiny thing that is presented to you. And actually, that's not necessarily the most important thing to you as a new graduate. It's obviously something that, you know, we do spend time at vet schools talking to students about how you pick your first job and, you know, give them lots of advice about it and get them speaking to new graduates so that they learn from their experience. But I would say go in with your eyes open. Think about what you need personally as an individual to succeed rather than what they're offering you, because the two may not be the same. And then talk to other people, talk to you know the support at the university, talk to your friends, talk to you know your support network at home, your parents or you know better half or whoever that might be, and get their advice as to what they think you might need because I think that's helpful as well. And I do think you know it comes back to the employability bit. It's as much about you know when you go for a job interview, it's as much about establishing the structure that you're going to be offered as as it is you know establishing what what you're offering them and if that conversation doesn't go well then that's telling you something isn't it yeah 100 percent agree so i would love just to perhaps wind us up with tell us about the vet set to go hmm. yeah so as you mentioned it's it was funded big project funded by the australian government a few years ago now and led by my colleague Martin, who's come up numerous times now, I shall have to tell him about this podcast, and a group, um, so it was an international group, so myself and some colleagues, my colleague Kate from Nottingham, and um, some colleagues at Edinburgh, Susan Rind, and then um, some colleagues in, more colleagues in Australia, a couple of different Australian vet schools, and then colleagues in uh, America as well. So what we were trying to sort of establish was, you know, what we mean by veterinary employability and, you know, what are the things that we can do both within the curriculum, but also, you know, beyond that point to help um, with this concept of employability. And it, and it, it sort of builds on the sort of a, a Venn diagram, if you like, thinking about professionalism, which obviously is the thing I was really originally interested in. I did my PhD about so how we behave as veterinary surgeons employability so you know your relationship with with your employer what you give what they give back to you and your skills that you have and then also your professional identity so who you are which I've talked about quite a bit today so there's those kind of three things and they sit in a Venn diagram and somewhere they overlap and that and that's you there that's that's what you do so Martin and team we, we all did various different things and um, the piece of work that we did here in the UK was to do a really big survey of uh, lots of clients and follow-up interviews uh, about you know what clients perceive as being a good employable vet what matters to them so that's you know always really important obviously to have that client voice in there really interesting data you know a really broad data set from both australia and the uk so that was a very interesting um piece of analysis that one of my colleagues did within our team and then you know also evidence from employers evidence from students themselves um, and just kind of bring it all together so it's well worth a look on the website because essentially what what um, they've ended up with the sort of crystal structure of what veteran employability means and that actually has been taken by the rcvs and has, has helped to shape the new day one competencies so you know it's very much an evidence-based process that they've gone through they've taken not just that but some other work as well um, and really thought about you know what what makes a good good veterinary graduate and and you know what's going to and it's not just about what you know what skills they bring it's also about you know your own sort of personal attributes and and those kind of things as well so it's a really interesting project it's well worth a read and there's some really nice sort of downloadable pdfs that you can actually use quite well with new grads as well to help them think about different skill sets and really draw out in conversation perhaps where weaknesses are where positives are and what needs to be worked on so yeah some really great resources 
I think it's great. We're going to link that up in the show notes. It's vetsettogo.edu.au. And one of the things I particularly like about particularly those sort of survey assessments is it, it gives you something objective and it takes it away from being my yes. opinion and your opinion and then the conflict that comes from that. Yeah, there's a lovely self-assessment tool, isn't there, in there, which is great. Yeah, right, exactly. I think that is just a a fantastic resource. So I'm going to wind up with a couple of last, uh, what I call, quick-fire questions. (laughs) uh, I'm not very good at quick-fire answers so far, but I'll do my best. (laughs) That's right. That's a a long-form podcast, so you're okay with that. I think we've gotten a sense of things like what things... you know, are your areas of, of strength. But one, one of the most fun questions I always, ever always ask is, what was the best piece of advice you ever received? And what was the worst piece of advice you ever received? And it's usually the second one that's more amusing. But I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever received, and uh, he'll remain nameless, but he knows who he is. When I was very early in my academic career, I sort of expected it would just sort of happen. And, um, you know, there was some incident where I, you know, I thought this would happen and I'd get this promotion and blah, blah, blah. And he said to me, you can't just expect it. You've got to work for it. And actually, that was really, you know, I think I, it wasn't inherent in me, but I just, I needed somebody to tell that to me. I kind of knew it, but, you know, I needed somebody to really push me on that. And that's really helped me. Was there a context in which that advice The context was, was around, um, I think I, I'd had some kind of disappointment around, you know, I just expected somebody to tell me that I should have applied for a promotion and pushed me in that direction. And he's like, no, no, you have to come to us and say you want to do it. That's the way it works. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, right. <laughs> this isn't anyone on me. Right. Okay. <laughs> Gosh, the worst piece of advice. I think when I was at school, I was told... <laughs> so. Uh, when I was doing my GCSEs, we had a bit of a, a troublesome physics teacher. The school just basically said, oh, we, you just won't be able to get your physics GCSE. And I was like, but I, I need to get my physics GCSE. There's no option here. I have to get it. So I suppose, again, it was a bit like somebody saying to me, oh, just don't bother. And I was like, no, no. So, you know, I, I, I still feel like that was one of my greatest achievements in my life was actually achieving my physics GCSE when basically we were told, oh, you'll get a C or something. But, you know, you can't expect better than that. And it's like, no, no, I, I need an A because I want to go to vet school. So I'm just going to go do it myself if that's what it's going to take. So, yeah, I still feel that was, I wouldn't fancy doing it today, I have to say, physics GCSE. But um, at the time, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was quite an achievement. <laughs> I'd say I'm impressed. I mean, I was impressed before. But... <laughs> well, physics GCSE, hey. <laughs> that is my very non-physics brain <laughs> i know i stopped it after that needless to say <laughs> are there any books you've read recently that you think wow that's a book i think a lot of people should read or and not necessarily maybe the recently is unhelpful but what are the books that you would have been the most important oh gosh in your life? well i suppose i would actually be really boring and and talk about some education books I suppose it's just thinking about, you know, the kind of people who might be listening to this podcast and thinking, oh, that sounds quite interesting education. I would just pick up any kind of general clinical education. I mean, there is a veterinary education textbook, which, you know, I have written a couple of chapters, but there's lots of actually much more kind of um, general clinical education handbooks, which are really useful. I would say just pick one of those up and surprise yourself. You know, just open it at a random chapter and surprise yourself with how much there is behind what we do in education, because it's a really interesting thing. And, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend one in particular because there's loads of them, but they all, you know, would surprise you in some way with, you know, either 
the technicalities and challenges around how we assess students through to, you know, the process of workplace based learning and how students work and learn in the workplace and all those kind of things. So, yeah, that would be what I'd recommend. That's my way of saying I don't have much time to read other books. So <laughs> that also sounds like a, a nice way of saying, can you stop bashing education? Uh, it's actually really no, bloody you hard. No, not me. I, I'm, I'm in the audience. Oh, the audience. Yeah. No, I, listen, I love education. <laughs> If you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, Liz, what would it oh, be? Oh, I think that's quite easy. Don't plan. Don't try and predict what your career is going to be like. Because I think I still have this thing of in my head of I'm not a proper vet anymore, which is so wrong. It's just really wrong because all my vet schools I use all the time. I just don't happen to operate on animals anymore. And I don't even work in a vet school anymore. So, you know, there we go. But I think, you know, a proper vet is you can't predict which way your career is going to go. And and in many ways, I suppose that's part of the sadness around people thinking they failed because they don't work in clinical practice anymore. And it's so not true. You know, we need, as a profession, we need to be out there doing other things. That's so important for the profession and, you know, for the evolution of our profession. And yeah, although there's a tiny bit of me that still goes, oh, you're not a proper vet. I think think if somebody said to me in the first place, don't don't worry, your career will go all over the place. And that's fine. It's normal because it is in many clinical qualifications, you know. Lots of other clinicians will go in all sorts of directions. But yeah, there have been moments of panic where I've gone, oh God, I don't, you know, I don't trot horses up and down anymore. I'm I'm worthless. <laughs> it's that labelling thing. Yeah, we isn't it? Why this... do we do it? Yeah, why do we do it? Is it back to Well, this? back to James Harriet. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I'm a, I'm a big James Harriet fan. I think he I mean, it's absolutely a, a positive even if it's not now what happens, it's, you know, it's a good thing to have there for us, isn't it? But yeah, I think we're just, you know, it comes back to where we started really about planning a curriculum. You know, we we have to remember that having a veterinary degree is not, it actually is a passport, as they talk about, to a huge number of different routes And and places and an amazing, fulfilling career. And just because you're not stood in a consult room or that doesn't mean you're not contributing to the profession. And, you know, some people have done some incredibly interesting things, as you've discovered in your podcasts. <laughs> Absolutely mind-blowing. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about no. you, but matter? <laughs> I'm really boring. I'm not very controversial. <laughs> I don't know. What's controversial about me? Yeah, not a lot, really. I'm, I think because I'm one of these people who just kind of gets on with the job, I, I don't have much time for controversy in my life. <laughs> Sorry, that's very unexciting. You can cut that bit out later. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Okay, so second to last question. Actually, there's three last questions, but the third last one is, if you can send one tweet out and the whole world can see it in your 280 characters or whatever it is now, what would the tweet say? Oh. And you can define world yes. in however terms yeah. you want. I don't know. It would be something about being a a good person who wants to do things for others is is not a bad thing. Does that sound really weird? But I think sometimes we get so focused on being great ourselves, we forget that it's actually about what we do for others. I'm going back to sounding a bit parsimonious again, aren't I? But I think particularly in in the realms of social media, there's so much noise, isn't there, that, um, you know, a tweet saying, actually, you know, it's all right, guys, just steady on and have a bit of a pragmatic view on life you know, and take things one step at a time, is actually fine. I'm a massive pragmatist at heart. That's that's where I am and that's what I do. And yeah, it keeps me on the straight and narrow, I think. 
Are there any last messages, things that we've sort of not talked about that actually are really important that you've got for the listeners? I suppose the, the thing we haven't touched on, which I was quite surprised you didn't pick up on, is the, I suppose we've sort of touched on it, is the stuff I've done around hidden curriculum, which I think is really interesting to people who haven't heard about it. So, you know, we've touched on it because we've talked about mentors and, you know, role models and those kind of things. But actually, the one thing that I always have tried to influence students around is stepping back and realising that what you're learning is not necessarily what's in that syllabus or curriculum and it's actually what's going on around you and if you can just step back and think about it for a moment then a that learning will be a positive thing rather than picking up on negative behaviors or bad behaviors unprofessional behaviors and also I think from a fulfillment point of view you'll realize how much you're learning because you're not just trying to learn all those muscles in the front limb or the hind limb or whatever it is you're trying to do you're also learning how to be how to act how to behave and what sort of values to demonstrate which is just so important to our clients at the end of the day i do love that you said that because that was there are 67 articles published on your <laughs> scholarly page on google but hidden curriculum and i think and, and forgive me i'm, I'm probably going to say it wrongly but the sort of it wasn't the cultural networks, but the um, cultural web. I, yeah. I missed yeah. cultural yeah. web. That's right. That got my attention, and as a factor of time, there's yeah. actually quite a lot of stuff that just. <laughs> it may be that there's a round two oh, no. that comes to pass here, <laughs> and there, there's actually the the whole move beyond that to the your current role. That is a fascinating area about, I mean, I suppose it speaks to the universities as much about the experience as it is, but it's beyond that. It's, you know, and it's the fact that you're looking to network beyond that, that was very interesting to me. How would you sum up the learnings from that? What are the things that are important that, and I suppose this is from the point of view of early education in in veterinary field, but I suspect there's a greater application to all of us here because there's a there's a much wider cultural question of is the product of education fitting the marketplace and is the marketplace grippy enough and by that i mean is the employee market actually voting with its feet and saying this product sucks um what is there to learn from your sort of thesis around this hidden curriculum and cultural network yeah so i suppose one of the ways to sort of think about it and this might chime to some people listening to this is is around organizational culture so effectively you know and and there's lots of parallels with the idea of the hidden curriculum you know effectively you know the culture of where we work the culture of where we study what we see going on around us we may not realize it at the time but it absolutely influences how we behave and and what we do and of course the challenge with our students and particularly in veterinary education is that they're out there in all sorts of different organizational cultures because you know they're out there doing ems they're you know they're in the school clinics they're you know they're all over the place and plus they're probably you know a lot of them are doing part-time jobs and you know learning from that way as well or you know involved in other extracurricular type activities so you're learning all the time and and the challenge then is is sort of developing students so that they're able to step back from that and really identify what they are learning and what is influencing them and you know the work that I did looked at a number of different factors within organizational culture if you like or the cultural web so role models and processes and you know it's basically the way we do things around here that would be the way I would I would I would sum it up and I suppose you know there is an argument that if we well certainly in my work I argued that 
if we try and sterilise that hidden curriculum. So if we only put students into those perfect practices, you know, where everyone's wonderful and nothing ever goes wrong and the clients are all angels and all those kind of things, it, it, it ain't going to work because actually, you know, the whole point is your learning comes from those experiences which may be slightly more challenging or more difficult. And although, of course, you'd learn from that environment, you wouldn't learn, you know, to be the sorts of vet that, that perhaps you need to be. And so it's not about sterilising it. What it is about is absolutely helping people to be able to step back and reflect and identify, you know, what they have learned, which is often a challenge because we don't realise we're learning it. So this is where, you know, mentoring processes and guided reflection is so important. And I think, you know, obviously reflective practice is something I've done a lot of work on over the years and, and you know, obviously embedded in curriculums. I've certainly made mistakes around it. You know, if you try and force students to do it as a sort of solo venture, it doesn't often have the desired impact. We try and make them do it. And yes, OK, making them do it is one way to get them to do it, but actually it probably isn't done in the right way. So, you know, there's lots of challenges around that. And, you know, there's lots of work. So Sheena Warman in Bristol did some really excellent work looking at the original PDP and, you know, her conclusions were very similar that actually you know, if you try and do it on your own, it's just going to become an internal negative process often. Whereas actually, if you do it properly structured with somebody guiding you through it and helping you and supporting you, then inevitably it will be a much more positive process. So I think it is about this concept of reflection. We all do it, but actually as challenging as it can be, formalising it and making it a bit more structured. And that doesn't necessarily mean writing things down. It might mean just having this kind of a conversation with a trusted colleague you know, helps your own development and helps you to understand what you're learning without realising it. That would be a very brief summary. And stops you being consumed by having shit FM on in your head, that trash talk where you just beat yourself up for some things that you you can't change and you end up in the cycle of of doom. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on mental health at all and would never never claim to be but certainly you know we do know that reflection is a very important process as a development a developing professional and if you haven't got the structure and the processes by which to do it effectively and properly then it could be you know it could it could you know you could end up in a really difficult situation so yeah I think there's some benefits there definitely oh that's just a monster topic all on its own no it's it's brilliant it's just huge and it's sort of a gateway into a whole other you know two-hour conversation for which we don't have time Liz it's been fantastic I'm, I'm so grateful for your time and also that we got the chance to have this conversation and just you know the, the work you've done the contribution you've made all over the planet to our understanding of of the environment in which we operate and the, the way we our humanity comes to bear on our day-to-day is just brilliant and I you know I feel like I'm at the start of digging into a lot of your work <laughs> <What> do you <laughs> as, as, as I am at the start of digging into this whole humanity yeah. Thing. yeah but just brilliant to have you on and spend a bit of time chatting to you and getting to know you a bit more so thank you so much for your time with pleasure. us on the podcast it's been great and I hope it's been of interest to people you never quite know do you <laughs> so, I've really oh, enjoyed the chat you know. so we'll see <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dave. So that's it for another episode here on Blunt Dissection. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Professor Mossop for her generous time and knowledge shared. We're really lucky to have her on Team Vet. 
just as we're lucky to have you on Team Fat as well. Now, if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Always gratefully received. We love reading those comments and that feedback. And if you know somebody who really needs to hear this episode, don't forget to forward it or tell them about the show. One last thing, do check us out at vethexinternational.com. So much resource there to help you in your career. Until next time on the show, all that remains for me to say is be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, 